Christmas is approaching. Sounds like I'm about to do an ad, but I am not. I'm just saying Christmas is approaching. Um, I think this is going out on the 19th of December, so you're probably listening to it on that day, or maybe way in the future, who knows. But either way, Christmas is either within a certain amount of months, or you know, it's either six months ahead or six months behind at most, or something. Someone correct my maths, please. Anyway, today's episode is with... Kelly Teal, who I've come to realise is Teal, not Thiel. I called her Kelly Thiel last time when she was on. That was episode 83, so if you've not yet heard that, give that a listen. And Kelly Teal was in the cult of Nixium. That's N-X-I-V-M, a multi-level marketing cult, or a cult that disguised itself as multi-level marketing, that was abusing its members. And its founder... Keith Ranieri seems to be a psychopath. He's in prison now, I think, for life. And Alison Mack, who is the celebrity actress from Smallville, she was like his right-hand person. And she and he were branding people with their initials as part of a ceremony and some sort of sex ceremony thing. So it's all pretty insane. And Kelly Teal is back on the podcast this time round, along with my friend Erin Smith-Levin, who's been quite a few episodes recently, the former Scientologist. And we're looking at cults in general and how Nixium is similar to Scientology and how it differs because Keith Ranieri, the founder of Nixium, stole a lot of psychological and neuro-linguistic programming things from Scientology. So it's I found this really fascinating. It's a two-parter, so the next part will be out next week. Um, otherwise, hope you're all doing well. Let me know how you are on the socials. That's Twitter and Instagram. There's a TikTok page and all of that stuff as well. And as I keep saying on YouTube, I'm just putting out loads and loads of content that I don't always put on here. Uh, things like analyzing uh, interviews and weird things that have happened in cults online. Those kinds of shortish videos are on the On the Edge with Andrew Gold YouTube page. Uh, thank you all for supporting me on Patreon. It means a great deal. And please do give some nice reviews on Apple and and uh, whatever, wherever else you can leave them. That would be very much appreciated. It's always nice to get a nice review. Coming up are an episode with Derek Lambert from Myth Vision. Now, Derek is this is one of the best episodes apart from today's one so do listen to this one but one of the best episodes in a while he is so emotional and fantastic and Derek is talking about his own uh, religious upbringing but also uh, how he got heavily involved in drugs and heroin and how it all coincided and it's a really raw episode it's going to be an absolute classic I think so uh, do join us for that uh, and then there's Helen Lewis coming up. There's Jason Flom from the uh, Wrongfully Convicted stuff. So loads of really interesting guests coming up. I've never felt more excited about it. I hope you do too. But now you're on the edge of Nixium and Scientology with Kelly Teal and Aaron Smith-Levin. Kelly, tell us a little bit about your own background and, and what Nixium is. Well, as a lot of people know, Nixium is a uh, self-help organization that turned out to be a cult later on down the line. Um, I joined Nixium in 2016 because I was looking for a, um, a way to belong to a group that was um, trying to help other people become better versions of themselves. 
that's kind of it in a nutshell. I'd been a seeker for a long time. I tried a lot of different things. I traveled traveled to Tibet and the Philippines, met the Dalai Lama, doing all these things, trying to become a better person. And then along came Nexium, and they had this mission statement and this uh, promise to help you become enlightened and grow. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try this because I was sort of at my wit's end, and that's how I got involved. And, and what and what is Nexium? So so it helps people grow, but so that, and that was the idea. But what is it? What was it actually underneath all of that? Well, actually, so it was a curriculum. Uh, like many other organizations, they bring you in with something that's going to help you or something that you're attracted to. And in this case, it was a curriculum that helped you become a more enlightened, more less reactive person, more of a responsive person to your life helping you to grow um, a business if that's what you were doing or just be uh, happier in life. And so that's what it, what it was originally meant to be, or actually that's what it was proposed to be. And that's the, what I bought. Um, and then it turned out later on down the line, <clears throat> as the longer I was in it, the more secrets I was kind of hearing about and information I wasn't really sure about. And after a period of about 18 months, then I was recruited into this women's organization that was not supposed to be part of Nixium, but ended up being run by Keith Ranieri, which was called DOS. And I was asked for collateral to know more about this group. And at that point, I turned it down or actually the thing blew up. So I didn't really have to make that choice because I was really being um, pushed to go into this group. And I felt like if I didn't go into this group, you know, there's a lot of peer pressure to do it. There was a lot of things yeah. coming from the top down to do it. So uh, fortunately, I was saved by the bell. Oh, my word. How much of this, Erin, is sounding familiar to you with regards to Scientology? I mean, every piece of it sounds almost exactly like Scientology, which is um, and like and when you said earlier that it's not necessarily that I feel more of a connection with people who have experiences that are other than Scientology. It's that seeing the exact same story mirrored in a different organization sort of, mm -hmm. and, and having it reflected back at you from a distance just drives it home how ridiculous <laughs> what you went through was and how you got, because it's easier to look at other people and go, oh God, can't believe they fall for that. But you don't realize that's, that's you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and like, I already know the Scientology story and the Scientology experience. I could hear a hundred of them and it doesn't quite shove it in my face how ridiculous it is. It's when I read about the Moonies that I go, oh my God, we're them, they're us, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and then I start watching The Vow and I'm like, I, I, I can just see everyone, I can just imagine everyone watching this show going, how could anyone fall for this? And, and I'm just thinking, we all fell for it. It's all us, you know? Um, and so it really is incredible. Like, it, it, even like you mentioned, what attracted you to it in the first place. It's all like training, coaching, mentorship. That's how Scientology gets most of its members is through these business consulting groups. Mm -hmm. I was just contacted last night by a family member who accidentally signed up for one of these Scientology business consulting groups, not knowing that's what they were signing up for. Oh, wow. And um, so now I was going to say the only difference is like the collateral. And yet, I, and, and yet as that's about to come out of my mouth, I go, no, Scientology sec checks. You're, you're giving all, them all the collateral they could ever need, except it's not framed in that same way. It's not mm -hmm. framed. 
but it's the same thing. <laughs> it, you know, divulging all these secrets, it, you're not doing, you don't think you're doing it to give the organization blackmail, but also when you do it, there's sort of almost this trauma bonding thing that occurs where now you feel closer and more connected to the organization and the people you're working with because you've just told them stuff no one else in the entire world knows. Right. And they promise to keep it safe and they promise to not judge it and they promise to do all this stuff with it. So you feel super bonded. You feel safe. You feel like, oh, these are my people really quickly. Exactly. One of the things I've been dying to know is what did, by the way, can you guys hear my dog barking outside? No. Okay, good. Thank God. Okay. It's driving me crazy. Um, What do Nexia members believe is the source, was the source of Keith Ranieri's special knowledge or wisdom they think that the source was basically he was born that way right that he was at like i'm not probably not getting this all correct but at three years old he was able to do math and at five years old he was a concert pianist and so on and so forth down the line so he was basically born this brilliant person were those parts of his history um legitimately true I believe not. Well, I, I know they weren't. I think that maybe, yes, he played judo, let's say, uh, but he wasn't like the judo master of, of New York. Um, did he play piano? Most probably. Was he a concert pianist? No. So I think, you know, maybe he could add two and two at three years old, but was he a mathematician? No. So I think those came from sort of him building on top of some of the things that he already might have done or some semi-talents and then turn them into this lore basically that the moment you walked into your first uh, class at Nexium, within the first couple hours they were paying tribute to, to him as the person who created this amazing curriculum you know he's the third smartest person in the world and at first I was thinking okay right like how, how do you even measure that and then <laughs> after a while you keep hearing about over and over again and how much we owe him for this amazing curriculum. And you're going through the curriculum and you're noticing these, you know, positive changes in yourself. So then it's like, okay, well, I can say that in exchange or sort of for feeling better about myself. Okay. And maybe I don't buy it, but I'm not going to necessarily challenge it. And that's kind of how it starts. And then it just keeps going and going and going. Aaron, who does Um, that sound like to you? Well, it's like, you know, L. Ron Hubbard was uh, taming wild Broncos at the age of eight and was the blood brother of the Blackfoot Indians at 10 and the world's youngest Eagle Scout before that even tracked ages of Eagle Scouts. And, you know, um, toured, uh, you know, traveled all through Tibet as a teenager. And you're like, no, he just visited his dad on an on a Navy base, you know, and and all this kind of stuff, except, you know, um, it's more with L. Ron Hubbard. It's a bit more than just a cult of personality. Uh, there's not a religious component to it necessarily, but there is a spiritual component to what Scientologists believe is the source of his special knowledge. And I've always right. wondered if it seemed like Keith and Nexium were sort of flirting with um, uh, taking a jump to that next step of there being some sort of an actual spiritual component to this thing. I don't think so. I mean, that was I, that was n- never anything that I heard about. In fact, religion was really never talked about at all in Nexium. It was never that, and you know, politics and things like that were, re- were really not discussed. It was almost as if he were just this special magical being that came onto this earth to to do to 
help people and create this amazing curriculum. And he's doing it for the, the, to safeguard humanity, basically. So there was never any religious component or even spiritual component. In fact, even enlightenment was not even talked about. That's something that I use that word enlightenment because that's what I was looking for. They talk more about, you know, being um, integrated as a person. I think that's that's so interesting because do you remember I was saying Aaron I think the other week that I feel a little bit like some of the the folklore around Scientology maybe if you had a if you had a modern day version of Scientology you probably wouldn't need it and I wonder if part of the reason you feel um, that sort of connection or the intrigue when you speak to somebody else who went through a similar thing from a different um, cult or group or whatever it might be I think for all of us as well it's more interesting to hear that there are different ones that have such similarities because I think when we hear if you haven't been in Scientology you're like, what's all this Lord Xenu crazy planet space stuff? Oh, I would never fall for that. When you start to hear the story of Nixian, the story of Scientology, the story of that um, orgasm cult that's on Netflix at the moment, you know, over and over again, you're hearing the same sort of neuro-linguistic programming, the same sort of this will self-improve you, uh, the same sort of, you know, lies about a leader uh, who seems almost godlike. Um, and I guess then people can understand it better. Then it's not like, I would never fall for this Lord Zenu stuff. It's like, no, forget forget that a second. Because I imagine, Aaron, I, I might be right, that the Lord Zenu wasn't what got you into Scientology. Was it Was it some sort of self-improvement feeling as well? Or what, what was it? Well, I mean, I was raised in Scientology. I never had to oh, yes, make sorry, a decision to that. join. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but no yeah. one knows about Zenu until they've spent a lot of years in Scientology. I mean, I spent 30 years in Scientology. I didn't learn about Zenu until after I left. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's important for people to know because people don't yeah. realize that about Scientology. Yeah, no, look, if, if you did not, if Scientologists didn't have to put on this sort of uh, churchy um, uh, uh, show, in order to justify having tax exemption, Scientologists would never call themselves a religion. Scientologists do not think highly of religion. They look down on all other religions, and it's really just a dog and pony show for the IRS. Scientologists consider Scientology to be an applied religious philosophy. And if you could have tax exemption while calling your, or an applied spiritual philosophy, if you could have tax exemption, uh, the special kind that churches get or whatever, um, while calling yourself that, that's what they would have stuck with. Um, it all does come down to the, the tax exemption. Um, and the thing is, like, there's not that much difference between the story of what Scientologists believe about L. Ron Hubbard um, and Keith Raniere, because even, even the story Scientologists tell themselves about L. Ron Hubbard, it's not like th they consider that you do enough of Scientology and you can get to that as well. They don't consider him to be some um, fundamentally superior to everyone else. They consider that by walking the path that he taped for everyone, you can become that as well. So even then, like, the, yes, they're putting him on a pedestal, but he's not necessarily viewed as being fundamentally superior to anyone oh, else. Interesting. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts, and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking 
the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. But but isn't there also, they've like prepared certain rooms for his coming back to life to be in the room again? Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> there's a couple different things here. Every Scientology organization has uh, an office, uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard's office. Now I can tell you that was always just, it's just a ceremonial thing. It's supposed to indicate that even though L. Ron Hubbard is no longer alive or no longer here, we operate on his policies as if he were here every day. It's a, it's a, it's more of a tribute thing. Now, this is another thing I didn't find out until after I left Scientology. (laughs) Most Scientologists do not think L. Ron Hubbard is coming back. Um, The group of senior Scientology managers um, at the international base were told he was coming back. And they did build a giant freaking ten multi tens of millions of dollars mansion on the base for his return. And they do lay out clothes on the bed, his same 1980s clothes, 1970s clothes. Um, I wonder how many Sea Org members would say that is just a ceremony as opposed to, no, no, he really might walk in the gate today, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so th- that answers your question. Like, just like most Scientologists have never heard of Xenu, most Scientologists are not expecting L. Ron Hubbard to return. Fair enough. Um, let's get on to the sort of so 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 Nixium disguised itself, I suppose, as a multi multi level marketing uh, operation, is what I gather. Uh, which I always found strange because a multi level marketing uh, company is already quite dodgy and weird and strange. You know, I, I would have thought if you wanted to hide or something, you'd hide or something less pyramidy. Although I don't actually know the difference between an MLM and a pyramid scheme. So, and Kelly, maybe you do. I don't. I don't know. But what what is an MLM? What is a multi level marketing? And 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 what is and and how did Nixium go about that? So, um, I probably don't describe this properly, MLM. But basically, an MLM is is a sales program almost set up looking like a pyramid, but I'm not sure it's the same thing as a pyramid. And mm. you, you are selling something and then you recruit people to sell the same thing. And there's sort of underneath you, whatever they sell, you get a part of. So you have a big organization underneath you. Now, Nexium was not an MLM in, in a sense that uh, overall, it did use MLM um, uh, setup in many of their businesses under the Nexium umbrella. See, Nexium is an umbrella with many businesses underneath, one of them being Executive Success Program, which is ESP, which was which I was a part of. Another part was Jeunesse. Another part was SOP. They had many, many um, uh, businesses underneath that all use MLM. Most of them use MLM to make their money, but really wasn't a lot of money. So we were in a little industrial park uh, shitty office basically in Albany. Um, there wasn't a lot of money necessarily within in um, Nexium overall. Sarah Bronfman is the one who pretty much was um, supporting Keith Ranieri with her hundreds of millions of dollars to allow him to do many things that he was doing. But as far as being like a salesperson within Nexium, I mean, I was a salesperson for a very short period of time. I think I made $300 until I figured out this whole MLM thing just wasn't going to work. It was stupid. Um, and so I, I'm not going to put my time there. But so there weren't people making tons and tons of money within the MLM part of the recruiting 
um, mm. scale there. So, so is the MLM then maybe a front? So that because I've just seen that sort of the difference between an MLM, a lawful MLM, and a pyramid scheme is that there is in a pyramid scheme there is no real product that is sold in it. So I guess to to not be okay. an illegal pyramid scheme, they had to at least like get you guys selling products. What, well, we what were selling sort of we were selling classes. Hmm. They were selling curriculums. So within each organization, okay. they had different curriculums, and you were selling people. Uh, you're getting people to buy that. You know, buy the curriculum, take the classes. That's all that was really being sold in most of the, um, the, the, the businesses under the Nexium umbrella. And what sort of effect, uh, you know, what was happening to you? Because I know a lot of people, it was not good being in Nexium for their mental health, even before going into the DOS program or whatever. So to yeah. give us a little uh, sense of what was, what was going on there. Well, when I first originally joined, I was totally in. I thought it was great. I'm learning from the curriculum. And right away, I was, they attached themselves to me and were basically love bombing me, which is telling you you're wonderful. We love you. You're just be a great part of this organization. We want you to become a coach. And I was pushed into being a coach very quickly. And I wanted to do it. So I became a coach very fast. And I got right into the stripe path, which was basically a way to move your way up using the sashes as a way to mark that. And then you'd be coaching other people, which is what I wanted to do. I wanted to take what I was learning and teach other people and help them feel better about themselves, help them be better in their careers with their families, be happier in life. So it's all gung ho. Next thing I know, I'm working for free. No one's getting, I'm not getting paid for anything. I'm going back and forth to Albany to coach these intensives. I'm going to Coaches Summit. We have calls, you know, a couple times a week trying to figure out who's in charge of what, which went nowhere all the time. It's just a complete waste of time. It was just insane. So all of my time was being sucked up by this organization. And then um, when I wouldn't perform, I would get punished. And, I, and every time I questioned anything, I'd have someone right in my face right away setting me straight. You know, so I was getting indoctrinated and I was pushing back against it because I didn't know what was happening. And then I would get talked back into it. And if I fought, and I used to argue all the time with Mark Elliott, like constantly, poor guy. I mean, I still feel bad about that in a way. But Who's Mark Elliott? Mark Elliott is, um, he still believes, he's still a true believer. And he is trying to help Keith Ranieri get out of prison. He was part of the Tourette's program. And he was my... Um, Direct, he's a person who enrolled me into Nexium, And so okay. I, for him, was an, an, a great way for him to enroll other people because I enrolled tons of people. It was so easy for me to do that because I was so gung-ho about it. I didn't get paid for a lot of it because I wasn't a salesperson the whole time, but I did recruit quite a few people. And so anytime I pushed back or asked a question, he would push back on me. And if he couldn't handle it, somebody higher up would come in. And so it was this constant, you know, reorganizing Kelly, you know, <laughs> keeping Kelly on the path. And so after a while, you know, that, that starts to wear you down. And I was physically getting worn down. I was mentally getting worn down. As we've talked before, there were sort of two of me. There was Kelly in the Orange County, and then there was Nexium Kelly. And I would bounce back and forth between the two because People on the outside were starting to question, was I in a cult? They were starting to question me. And so I'd have to like step up to being the old Kelly and try to keep them, you know, uh, believing that I was okay. And then there was a Kelly that was getting further and further indoctrinated into Nixium. And it was getting harder and harder to keep those two separate. Hmm. Is, Orange got, is Orange County, California, where you got into Nexium? Yes. 
Uh, was that a, was that a big recruitment center for them? No, it wasn't actually. It started to become one once I was enrolled and some other people, and we were recruiting everyone that we knew. But we didn't actually have a center. We were trying to build a center at the time, but we had we ran into a lot of problems with that. It's funny because in Scientology, for um, for your what what you call your lower level class five city level organizations. Orange County was always one of the biggest in the United States, really, because there's, really? so there's so much money in Orange County. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Scientology is very expensive. And so um, that's just that, that's that's interesting. How long were you in it before you made the jump to Albany? And what was the purpose of um, doing that? Well, I never made a full jump to Albany, thank God. <laughs> um, but I would travel back and forth. So I was traveling to Albany from the very beginning because I actually did my first uh, 10 days of the 16-day curriculum, the beginning curriculum I did in Los Angeles. And then the last five days was being held in Albany. So I hopped on a plane and went to Albany. And that's when I met Keith on my first trip. Can you give like just one example of what like the first, one of the first things you did in Nexium that you found value in like, so that people get an idea of like the, the hook, like in Scientology, it's usually like either the communication course or it's the course about suppressive people who are bad influences on you. And you go, Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. What is it? But, but very, much less people I think understand what Nexium really is. So like, what would it be the first hook? So the, I think the first hook for me was partially going my, and during my first five days in Los Angeles, it was being held in someone's home. And the first couple of days, you know, I'm surrounded by all these people who are actors, who are directors, who are super creative people that were taking these classes. And um, so for me to be in groups with these people and just being sharing life experiences, our, our traumas, our ups and downs was really great. So for me, that was sort of like the first hook. It's like all these really cool, hip people are doing this. Then there must be something right about this. And all the coaches were sort of the same. And so that's kind of what kept me coming back those first five days. But the at the end of the first five days, I think it was, we were doing something called an exploration of meaning. It's called an EM. And you kind of go, you work with someone who is a coach, and you find something that's kind of tripping you up in life. And for me, it was public speaking. And we, you go, they go in and they ask you, when did you first have feelings about this or that? And you kind of dive into your past experience. And when I was in sixth grade, I was graduating um, and we're all standing on bleachers and my, they forgot to call my name. And so they skipped me, called everybody else. And here I am standing on these bleachers and they still haven't called my name to go get my certificate. And at, at, in sixth grade, you know, that's pretty traumatizing. It's embarrassing. Yeah. You're standing in front of everyone. So that's kind of what we went back to. And, we, and then when I really looked at it, and after that at EM, I just felt totally different about speaking to people. Now, I'm a terrible public speaker, <laughs> but I'm not traumatized by it anymore. And so I knew after I did that, and then I went to Albany and had to introduce myself to a whole new set of people during the last part of the 16-day I didn't have that feeling anymore of like, oh my God, I can't do this. And so that's when I knew that it worked. I was like, okay, so that's where I was completely hooked. Like this stuff mm. works. Does that resonate with you, Aaron, and, and experiences in Scientology? Yeah, I mean, EM essentially, it just sounds like Nexium's version of a Scientology auditing session. 
And um, and there's different kinds of auditing sessions, but they they do recall they they all involve to one degree or another, um, some moment of pain and unconsciousness or discomfort or whatever, and just going through it and through it and through it and finding something earlier similar and going through it and through it and through it until you experience emotional relief. Mm-hmm. And um, and what it, it stands for emotional what what does EM stand Explor- for exploration of meaning. So you're trying exploration. to find the meaning behind. You're exploring and looking for the meaning behind the trigger that's causing the emotional response, basically. And an intensive doesn't. Um, what does an intense? What does an intensive refer to? Because that is a specific Scientology word that when I heard, I've never heard it used in any context similar other than in Nexium. What exactly does it mean in Nexium? So an intensive is a five-day curriculum program, or a ten-day, or a sixteen-day, any kind of um, uh, classes together as an intensive. And so it could incorporate EM. Do you call them sessions? A session of EM? Uh, just call, We just basically call them an EM. Just you're going to get an EM. If you don't shut up, you're going to get an EM. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what. I was EM to death. To death by Nancy, by everybody. I was EM to death. Wow. Yeah. So an intensive would incorporate EMs. Um, I'm still having trouble truly conceptualizing what... Lucky, you mentioned sharing, um, being in the house in Los Angeles and sharing experiences but that's not that wasn't an em though no so that would be like in a group so basically you had a film of nancy talking about a specific subject for example cause and effect and then you'd have one of the coaches sort of do a debrief on it and then you would go into a small group with a coach and talk about it so during that time people would you know we would explore other times something that may have happened to us or some trauma will come up and people were traumatized during this program. Like you have people just have these meltdowns that didn't happen to me until later, but some people early on would have meltdowns and you know, everyone would go around them and they'd sit them down. They'd talk to them either in a group situation or separately. So you're kind of, um, it wasn't really trauma bonding because we weren't really bonding over trauma. But we were bonding at that time over being human beings on this planet that have I- experienced trauma, basically. But we're just talking about it. You're still not really bonding with people in your group until later on down the line after you spend a lot of time with them. Then you really start to bond. So it's all some kind of personal work, personal emotional work. Are there actual courses like course packs where you you know, sit down and flip through pages and study? Or is it these videos that you watch and then you sort of workshop it or almost? They're videos and you do get a little bit of paperwork, but it's not much. And there is nothing, you don't get to take it with you. So you don't get to take a packet at home and go, oh, I went over this and that. They encourage you not to take notes, that you should just be sitting in the class and absorbing everything. They didn't want you to take notes because they didn't want you using this anywhere else. They didn't want you mm-hmm. explaining it to anyone else. You had to go to the courses to have to, to, to experience it. And so they'd laugh at you when you take, oh, don't take notes, just be, be present. So there was what, nothing. What kind, of, what kind of things though? What, what was the philosophy of Nexium then? What is it? Is it like just how to be a more confident person? Well, it was how to be a better, more enlightened, not enlightened, more integrated person so that you could be in the world and not react to what was going on, but respond the way you wanted to respond as a whole person. It was about not allowing your trauma to dictate how your future goes. It was about how to understand that you're at cause for everything that happens in your life, right? So if I know I'm at cause, I can't blame you. 
Um, So it's all about that. Now, some of these tools are are good to use. I still use them. Uh, There had to be something good in it to keep people in it. But I can also use those same tools coming from a different intent to get a different outcome. Right. So Mm. that's the problem. So even something like that phrase, at cause, it's Mm -hmm. such a simple combination of commonly used words, and yet I've never heard it used outside of Scientology except for Nexium. Oh, at cause was used in Scientology. It's one of the most common concepts, phrases, words in Scientology, putting you at cause. Scientology puts you at cause. You have to be at cause, not effect. Cause and effect, you know. Um, Mm. Was Scientology ever mentioned in Nexium? So not directly, but I had a lot of people say, so as a coach, you have new people coming in. Some like yourselves will come in for five days and they're like, yeah, this is okay stuff, but you know, this is like Scientology or like, this is NLP or I read this in someone else's book and, and I always be, oh yeah, I don't, I didn't know anything about Scientology at the time, but I was always told by everyone else, if somebody says that, just say, well, no, you know, Keith's the smartest man in the world. <laughs> this is his own stuff. I don't know what you're talking about. So it wasn't directly talked about except when it was being criticized. And usually people who caught onto that early on were like, thanks, but no thanks. This was great for five days. See ya. Huh. Don't call me. Uh, did they bye-bye. did they ever did they speak about um because obviously a lot you know a lot of people know that Scientology's biggest enemy is psychiatry and the psychiatric industry was there ever mention of that kind of thing in Nixium The only thing not many psychology or psychiatry Nancy was an NLP um specialist she didn't I don't know if she had a background in psychology necessarily mm-hmm. I mean also she had a degree in that but we were not allowed to take people that had any psychotic issues going on. So if, if it okay. came up in the paperwork, you fill out all these paperwork, this whole pack, excuse me, of, of, of um, questionnaires, sort of basically looking to see if you were a narcissist. There's a lot of that in there, I found out later. And they were looking for people to sort of weed out. They didn't want anybody causing problems. They didn't want anybody having meltdowns, although many people did. They didn't want to be responsible for someone who already had psychiatric problems mm. ha- having more that they couldn't a handle. Lesson from, a lesson from Scientology as well, I imagine. Were there any rules about um, taking like psychiatric medication? No. Um, it was sort of kind of frowned upon, but there was never anyone saying, go off your meds that I know of. I mean, that would be suicide. That's stupid. Was it sort of considered that if somebody was taking them, though, that's kind of a sign there might be yes. something questionable. We may not want this person. Yes, and I think that that's where the the questionnaires kind of came in. And I think if, if a a coach saw that somebody really had some issues, they would go to Nancy and say, you know, is this somebody that we really want? Is something we, you know, that we can handle? And there ha- were a few rumors that I heard about where some people did sort of, you know, go off the deep end. Hmm. Incredible. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose the sort of the overarching theme is is that anything that happens in your life, you know, you're at cause for it. Uh, you, you, is it pulled it in, Aaron? Was that the expression? Um, yeah, you pulled it in. I mean, realize that when Scientologists, usually when Scientologists are talking about this, they're not talking about it in an ethics, justice, punitive sense. They're talking about it in sort of an abstract, macro, spiritual um, responsibility sense that it's sort of a healthy way of viewing existence 
that you don't view yourself as effect, you view yourself as cause. And so, yes, if someone does something bad to you, yes, that person did something bad to you. But what's even more spiritually healthy is for you to understand how in some way, no matter how remote, you were actually responsible for that. So that once you take that responsibility, you feel like, oh, I see. There's no anxiety about it. You're like, oh, I see what I did to precipitate yep. that. Not that you're 100% responsible, although, you know, if you truly believe it all, you are. But the point isn't blame. I mean, I'm giving the most charitable interpretation of it, the way a Scientologist would give you the interpretation of it. The point is, well, literally, to put you at cause. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be effect. Effect is low on the tone scale. Cause is high on the tone scale. Yeah. Thetans are intrinsically at cause over everything. And the more you recognize that, the more you are essentially coming to terms with your true spiritual, you know, power. Um, and Scientology has that spiritual component thrown into it that Nexium doesn't. And yet the tools are exactly the same. The, the thought process is exactly the same. The way it's used to manipulate people is exactly the same. See, the thing is, and I think I think Kelly touched on this before, it's that that I mean, that's a really addictive way of thinking and I think it has a lot of grains of truth in it and of course you know the grains of truth obviously or no one would sign up to these things in the first place but I think we all know that feeling I don't know when I was a teenager anything that happened to me there was this woe is me why does it always happen to me and you sort of grow out of that and you do find I think it is really good advice to say to people like you know you can affect your own life you don't have to just sit there and take it you know you can just and if you've spent your whole life feeling a bit of a victim a bit powerless and then someone comes along and says do you, you know you can do whatever you want and like I know that's also dangerous because it can be wrong and unfair and people blame themselves, right? But mm -hmm. just a grain of that. And I think anything, like moderation, take a bit of that in moderation. Like, don't always go like, hey, why did that happen to me? Sometimes you, and we've all got friends as well who just, you know, you know those people who are just like, oh, everything was someone else's fault. And you want to shake them and just be like, no, well, some of it is other people's fault, but we can't do anything about them right now. They're not in this room. You're the only one in this room and you don't want to victim blame. I get that. But come on, sort your, you know, and that's a really powerful feeling. So I guess that's i guess that's the thing and, i mean were there, were there other parts like that i mean what was it kelly tell me what 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 apart from that or including that made you feel great at what and, and what and what have you kept uh from nixium yeah that's a great question and and i've had this question so many times especially from people that were in nixium and are still struggling with and i had this conversation last night at dinner with someone and they're saying but there were so many great things about nixium there were so many you know, the tools were great. I still use them today. And that's where, you know, being at cause is actually a very good tool to a point, right? You can see yourself and your responsibility in most things. And there are some things where you don't have responsibility, where you actually really are a victim. There are times when people are 100% victim of their circumstances, right? And but there's most of the time, you know, we have some cause in what's going on, right? And so I tell people to just use these tools in moderation when it makes sense. If it goes too far, you'll know. For example, if I leave my house and I'm driving nicely and doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, I come to a stop sign and somebody hits me, how in the hell is that my fault, right? I mean, how, because I left the house at 10.02 instead of 10.03, it doesn't make sense. So that's where it goes too far. And so I tell everyone, just use these tools, make sure your intent for your use of them for yourself, make sure you're looking at that to make sure why you're doing it. 
and go ahead and use them. And then just know that, yes, there were some good things in Nexium. There was also a lot of bad things. And those bad things, the good things don't make the bad things okay. And so you have to be able to separate those two. And a lot of people have a hard time with it because they think, well, it was so wonderful. And, you know, now it's gone. Well, yeah, but you still can use what you learn just like anything else. I, I love the car accident example, too, because, um, well, because I was just in one about a year ago where it was not my fault at all. And since I'm not in Scientology, I didn't have to tell myself that it was. <laughs> <laughs> nice. like, I was driving in the middle lane, going through a major intersection, and someone ran a, uh, just blatantly ran a red light, T-boned the car next to me, and the car next to me got pushed into the back of my truck. I was going the speed limit. I was observing all traffic laws. I even saw it before it happened. It was not my fault in any way, shape, or form, although the insurance company premiums uh, don't reflect that. Um, and yet, <sighs> if I were in Scientology, they would say, well, sure, you didn't cause the car accident. But L. Ron Hubbard says, all accidents stem to a greater or lesser degree from being connected to a suppressive person. So mm -hmm. someone in your environment is either a suppressive person or is acting suppressively towards you. And by the way, in order to become susceptible to that sort of suppressive influence, you have to be doing bad things that you're withholding. So, it, the accident you're screwed anyway, you're screwed no matter what. <laughs> so either way, you're sitting down, writing down your overts and withholds of the bad things you've done and the things you thought someone might have found out, but didn't find out about. And it's all because of like, because of something that happened to you, that isn't your fault. And, and this happens every time L. Ron Hubbard said not only accidents, but all illness, you get a cold, you get the flu, you have allergies. It's because someone's suppressing you. And you're susceptible to being affected by it because of your overts and withholds. So people run around in Scientology pretending not to be sick because it's stigmatized that if you're sick, it's because you're doing harmful acts and you're connected to suppressive influences. And, and just imagine the, the, the neuroses, mm -hmm. the anxiety that exists in all Scientologists. Like if someone feels like they're coming down with a cold, they just they'll skip course because they don't want anyone to know they're sick because they don't want to have to get sent to ethics for a PTS handling. <laughs> and um, and and during the lockdown, during the the um, the lockdowns over the last couple of years, staff members and Sea Org members were told if you get sick, not even with the virus, if you get sick, you are literally subjected to. Scientology's version of a court martial because they said we have put such strict guidelines in place uh, between disinfecting rooms, disinfecting surfaces, masks, gloves, and everything that the only way you could possibly get sick is you've been violating the guidelines, whether you know it or not. And therefore, if you get sick, you're in trouble. I mean, you're penalizing people for something that's just naturally occurring. Wow. And so anyway, I mean, you want to talk about the idea of being at cause uh, taken to its ridiculous, absurd and abusive extreme. I swear to God, the more I hear about um, Nexium, the more I feel like he perfected Scientology. I, I feel like Nexium is an it, uh, perfected, meaning made it more effective, uh, culty, more culty with even less restrictions. Like, yeah, there, it was more palatable and less restrictions. Exactly. Yeah. Which is incredible. Keith Raniere is a genius. <laughs> well, I said this to you last time, Aaron. He's not because he's in prison. And L. Ron Hubbard never got caught. 
Yeah, well, um, Keith Raniere faced up to the charges. L. Ron Hubbard fled to the sea. <laughs> well, if Keith was that smart, well, he it'd be in the sea. <laughs> he tried? He? Well, he left her Mexico. He, he was in Mexico when he was uh, apprehended. Oh. So right. he did try Into to leave. See, yeah, if he knew how to sail a ship, though, he could have been in the middle of the Atlantic like L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> he should have been but it, it is interesting that self-castigation thing is obviously something we enjoy doing and there are certain ideologies politically as well that do that as well there's this feeling like we should all punish ourselves there must be something addictive about that feeling of punishing oneself once you start doing it i know some people get addicted to tattoos for example the apparently that's punishing it's like the pain you get addicted to does that does that ring true for you guys at all not for me. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I don't know. I avoided punishment as much as possible. And I I avoided, you know, confrontation mm. as much as I could. Although I seem to always kind of be in trouble a lot. But uh, Well, yeah. you guys broke out though, didn't you? So maybe you're not the typical sort of the people that the cults want. Well, I, you know, I was, I was towing the line for sure. It's just that mm. I was doing it sort of begrudgingly and kind of you know, I, every time I pitched a fit, I would be called, you know, you're just entitled, you know, you're totally spoiled. And, you know, they knew that would hit a hit a, a, um, a nerve for me because, you know, I live in Orange County. I yeah, I'm very um, fortunate in my circumstances. And so that's something I've always kind of felt a little guilty about in a way. And I've always tried to give back and I think like most people. And so when they would say that, oh, you're just being entitled and you're, you're acting like a princess, it, it would get me. And I'd be, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I probably am being entitled here. And I'd stop and kind of pull it back together and, you know, continue on. So that, yeah. that was part of not necessarily punishment, but just sort of belittling you, keeping you constantly. Well, there, there's two questions I had. Um, you made reference um, very early on here to it sounded very specific. You said either disciplined or getting in trouble. It sounded very specific. Um, what does that look like in Nexium? So there wasn't really a punishment per se. I mean, you could do what they called, um, oh, what is it? I forget what they called it now, but you could do, I'll think about it in a second, but you, you basically would get called out and, so it's more like a kind of a peer pressure type of thing, right? You're trying to grow Kelly as a person, but you're not doing it when you do X, Y, Z. And then someone else would get involved and they'd say, yeah, that's true. Sometimes it would happen in a group situation. Sometimes it would happen one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes it would happen if so the first person couldn't corral me and get me back in line, then another person would come in. So it was sort of done like that. So there wasn't any direct punishment that I experienced other than um, being told, you know, we're, we, you won't get promoted if you do this. Uh, you won't be, um, you're, you're not going to be growing if you do this. So it was basically up to each, um, well, I want to say leader, but that's not like an official term, right? Um, uh, well, that leads me to another question. Was there a very definite structure where you bring people under you and they bring in, I know it's multi-level marketing is different. There's a different, yes. that has other connotations, Yes, but and was it like you could only have a certain number of people under you or no. you could have a limited people under you? Yeah, okay, you just enrolled people as you as you saw fit. Like, And I enrolled quite a few people because I had a 
uh, I had a, a Reiki business at the time, an energy healing business. And I had a lot of people who came to me for a lot of things. And so for me here, I'm just passing on this great information that I have about this organization. And one funny thing is somebody just reached out to me, one of my old clients from years ago. <laughs> So she's on my table, right? And she's telling me about this. Um, and I'm in Nexium, and I've been talking to her about Nexium for months. And she goes off and she does this thing with this guru in the desert for like a month and a half, and I don't see her. And she comes back all messed up. And I'm like, I don't think this is good for you. I, I think you might be in a cult. <laughs> and i didn't realize i was already in one and we'd laughed about that a couple days ago but you know it's just uh i'm sorry i forget what the question was well so what what do they call that relationship you bring someone in what does that make you to them so that just makes me the person that enrolled them i'm not necessarily their coach and generally speaking the people that you enroll you are not their coach you are given people to coach I, so the people that I enrolled, I just basically was a person who enrolled them. But I did look after them as, as a group organization in terms of making sure that everything was – I'd check in with them. I'd make sure that whoever was their coach was doing what needed to be done. That Did they need anything else? Did they need any more um, – I would recommend curriculum for them um, if their coach wasn't. Um, so it was sort of like I did look after them for two reasons. One, we were supposed to, but two, because I felt I really wanted to. These are people that I knew. These are people that I cared about. And I wanted to make sure their experience was good. So mm. it was it was twofold. So this when is like, someone oh, is, sorry. when someone's, um, I'm just going to use the word punishing you or disciplining you or whatever, is that always your coach or could it be anyone? Could be anyone that's above me. Could be anybody. And it was everybody. So because <laughs> I was still kind of low on the totem pole. <laughs> <laughs> this this is all like a lot of work, right? Getting these people in, you're you're looking after them, you're checking. I mean, are they for everybody else doing the same job as you? Are you guys getting paid at all for this, or is it just like a thrill of being part of the group? Well, I would have gotten paid if I stayed with the sales program, which didn't make any sense on any level. It just it was crazy. So I just enrolled people because I felt it was the right thing to do. I, I thought it was great. I wanted people to experience this wonderful thing that I thought I had. And how did that um, guilt affect you, you know, when you were leaving and you realized it was a cult and you'd gotten, for example, this this Reiki client into it? Well, I felt terrible. I, you know, I talked to pretty much everybody that I enrolled and explained to them what had happened. And even, but at that time, in the very beginning, I didn't even really know what was going on. I didn't have a grasp on the whole thing. I'm still learning from The Vow, season mm. two. I'm still. Oh, is that right? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I'm still wow. what's because I would have think of it as a big, huge puzzle. And there's a lot of pieces. And I might have one piece that happened to me that was sort of I remember in my mind. And then something on the vow will come up to either verify that or put another puzzle piece next to it. It gives me a little bit more information about that moment. And so, yeah, I I, mm-hmm. I'm, so- I watch him twice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both you. Well, you're only really one of the only person I've spoken to in real life about this, but um, what's the name of the woman on the show? Um, it was uh, Mark Vicente. No, no, the younger one. Uh, Bonnie Mark- Keith or Sarah? Edmondson? Sarah. She also was talking about what an effective recruiter she was. She was huge, yeah. So were you putting up those numbers? No, 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 not even okay. close. I, you know, she so was a the- 10 and I was like a three maybe. Okay. <laughs> By the time you got to a point where you were comfortable bringing other people into the organization, what was your pitch? How did you describe to them what it was you were trying 
to enlighten them about? So people were coming to me because they weren't feeling good about themselves. They were coming to me because generally they were seekers looking for something. And I would tell them, or they'd say, wow, you, you just have it all together. You just seem like you're just doing so great. And I would say, yeah, I, I've been doing these courses. They're amazing. I really think they would be amazing for you. And I really did. I thought they were life-changing and I was just sharing that information. So it was super easy to enroll because most of my clients had the resources to do so. They had the time to do so and they had the inclination as well. So it was a fair, for me, it was pretty easy to enroll people. It was not difficult. And that's what made me a, I wouldn't say a superstar at all in the organization, but some, they were, they were watching me for sure. And I was being supported in ways that other people who weren't enrolling as much as I was, they, they weren't as supported as I was. I was being very handheld and I didn't know that until after I heard it from a very reliable source. Oh yeah, they were all over you. And we all knew we needed to take care of you. So you're doing this Reiki business in Orange County, and it's relatively easy to introduce people. The people that you're bringing in, are you having to sign them up for an intensive in LA, or are you doing them on your own in your own home in Orange County? So we did actually, most of them were in either LA or Albany, and we did actually have an intensive here in Orange County, uh, a couple of them at a friend's house in um, San Juan Capistrano. Hmm. I mean, to in some extent, do these intensives sort of turn into parties or like, is it okay to drink and have fun and be social? Or is it like a very sort of well, spiritual is not the right word. Is, is it very focused? It's very focused, but at the end of the day, there's a social part of it. Um, drinking wasn't really, uh, they didn't really want you to drink, although we did, but you, it really wasn't something, alcohol, drugs, anything to change your state outside of yourself was really not at all um, part of it. And so you did bond with people after five days. You spent 12, five hour, uh, 12 hour, you know, five days at about 12 hours each with the same people. You really start to bond with them because you're all working toward the same thing. So by the end of five days, you guys are almost all best friends. You have this huge thing in common. And so there was this bit of sort of celebration after a five day or especially a 16 day. So we would go bowling or we would go out and have pizza or something that was, was very social. So in Scientology, an intensive means 12 and a half hours of auditing and auditing is sold by the intensive. Auditing is sold in 12 and a half hour chunks. And so it's funny that you're like, we do five, 12 hour days, man, you're doing an intensive a day in Scientology. That's a lot. <laughs> Um, and again, yeah. it's one of those things where it's such a simple word. It's not a special word. And yet I've never heard the word used um, as a noun like that uh, outside of Scientology other than in Nexium. Now, Mike Rinder, who's the co-host of the Scientology in the Aftermath show, he was in Vancouver on like a layover for a trip or whatever. And, and he met up with Sarah and Mark Vicente and Sarah. And they, they said, yeah, uh, Keith studied Scientology. But but I don't, I'm not aware of where or when or how, because the kind of stuff that um, Keith has taken from Scientology, it's not the stuff you can read in the basic books that you can huh. buy in a bookstore. It's the stuff that's in the technical bulletins and the policy volumes that you don't just stumble upon those. You, you, don't, you, you don't buy them at the bookstore. You can't. You can only buy them from Scientology. So I'm, I'm, I'm dying to find out where he was actually um, – exposed to it he must be a genius oh he's, he was uh, he was <laughs> on the just he all just came in yeah just <laughs> keith and Aaron, Ron we get, on the same wavelength should we get keith ranieri on the show and ask him 
Oh yeah, we'll zoom them in. <laughs> we'll zoom them in from prison. We I did can clarify that room. for you. <laughs> <laughs> I did a podcast episode to a prisoner once. I wonder how hard it would be to get hold of Keith Renier. We'd have to find out what prison he's in and, and yeah. see if he wants to talk. I have I have done that before, but you, you have to keep reconnecting every 15 minutes with a prisoner because it, it, the oh. phone hangs up and they have to get back in the queue, the line. So, Kelly, did you personally meet Keith? I did. Mm-hmm. Does everyone who goes to Albany meet Keith? No. Thank you to my wonderful guests, Kelly Teal and Aaron Smith-Levin. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Part two will come out next week. Um, Just fascinating, really, to see how those cults were similar, how the ideological stuff compares. um, And I really, really enjoyed that. Please do uh, follow Aaron Smith-Levin's Growing Up in Scientology YouTube channel and get hold of Kelly Teal's book, Unapologetically Glorious follow them both on social media just give our guests some love some great episodes coming up particularly the one next up on thursday it's out with derek lambert from myth vision youtube channel and he is just wonderful so emotional so raw so honest talking about his difficulties with heroin addiction and alcoholism and a father in the military and a drunk father and all these kinds of things unbelievable so please do join on thursday I'll see you then. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.